House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery on KCA 106.5 FM in Los Angeles and 1050 AM Palm Springs. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Joe Goldberg. How you doing, Joe? I'm here, Al, on Badly Technology today. It's our friend. So if this, if this, if this uh, interview goes down, blame me because technology and I are not getting along today. Well, every time something goes wrong, I blame you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Stand in line. You, that's right. You know, and then you can kick the dog. No, um, no, not the dog. Kick my computer. Yeah, I know. They're a pain. They're a pain, but it's, it's what we live with now. So that's our friend. Uh, one day they'll be plugging right into us live. So. <laughs> And, you know, we, so we got a great author with us again today. It was quite a week. Um, so let's just bring him in and start talking. So we got Mr. Brad Taylor. Thank you for being here, Brad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Brad, now you've, you've done really well with this writing, uh, writing thing, eh? Um, how, why did you decide to go into writing books with your history? I mean, you, it looks like you have a, quite a background in, in all sorts of things, special forces and, uh, uh, what what got you into writing? Uh, believe it or not, I never set out to be a writer. I it just I've always been a voracious reader, and it was always just kind of a bucket list thing of mine that I was gonna one day I was gonna write a book. And uh, I you know was deployed constantly, and I came down to Charleston to teach at the Citadel, a military college here, and I found I had a ton of time on my hands after leaving a special mission unit at Fort Bragg and coming here. Uh, and so one day, you know, I just told my wife I'm gonna write a book. And I figured, you know, it would sit on the bedside table and, you know, my mom would say I'm a really good writer. And that would be the end of that. Uh, and then the book sold. And so I had to make a choice. I was, you know, I came out of promotion list of colonel and I was going to be my next assignment. I was two years on a county to Southwest Asia doing counterterrorism stuff. My daughter's are in high school uh, and then the book sold. And so I turned down the promotion, said I'm give writing a try. Well, what gave you the confidence to do that, but like to actually do that first book and actually send it out to be published? Uh, confidence would be ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, yeah. I had no idea how hard it was to be published uh, or how hard just, you know, just how the publishing industry works. And I didn't know any of that. It's completely outside my wheelhouse. So it was just a confidence born of, uh, you know, heck, why not? Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, totally. And and so have you adapted well as things have changed, like social media and all this stuff? Now you have to be uh, present in more, not just uh, going to bookstores now. You have to go all over the place and on social media and stuff. How do you like that? Yeah, that's that was probably the hardest thing because I was in my most of my military career was classified and I never had social media. You weren't allowed to be on social media. Uh, so I didn't know anything about it. And uh, in fact, to this day, I don't even have a Facebook page myself. I have an author's page which is tied to my wife's page as the official account. Um, and uh, I had a lot to learn. And luckily, my wife does most of that, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm the one that does the posts and things like that, but she's the one that manages the website, manages Twitter, manages Instagram, manages TikTok, manages Facebook, all that she does. You're dancing on TikTok? What's that? No. Actually, my Are younger you daughter set me up a TikTok account. <laughs> I have yet to do anything on it. The Lord knows what's on there. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the Chinese appreciate it, Brad. Thank you very much. Please post all your special forces secrets. Right. We'd like to know. Hey, I got a question for you. Um, when you were in the military, what were your peers reading? Were they reading books that you were writing now? 
Uh, it depended. Most of them uh, read kind of murder mystery type stuff. That's in fact, that's still what I read. Um, because I mean, when you're living that life, you really don't want to read about it. Uh, you, most of the stuff, you know, I write everything I write is pure fiction. We don't. There's no such thing as a task force. I invented that out of whole cloth. And obviously, you know, if uh, people ask if you were really going to write a real story of how it really is, it would be 500 pages of PowerPoint briefings, and then the last chapter would be mission denied. <laughs> so exactly, that's it's a much slower burn than uh, you know any of these books have. So. I mean, I bet doctors don't read medical thrillers and things like that, and so we really didn't read much in this genre. Well, I can't help but think that uh, your experience in the military has an influence on your writing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it, you can't help but do it, but that's, I think that would be with any writer. I mean, if you were, if you were going to write a scene about uh, doing something in a grocery store, what would you think about? You'd think, well, what was the last grocery store I was in? If you write a scene about riding a bike, you'd think about what's it like to ride a bike. Uh, so when I'm writing a scene about a gunfight or, you know, operational planning or special forces or any of that kind of stuff, yeah, obviously I, I fall back on my experiences. Well, just for make sure every, if, you, if no one's read the Pike Logan books, then you're way behind. Get on, get on the books, um, Brad's books. But what was important to you since you have such a deep background in special forces and as an educator and special forces kind of across the spectrum of that also, what was important to you to get across in your books? Uh, well, the main thing, to be honest, like I said, first, I was, uh, I've just been a voracious reader my entire life. The main thing would be just to write an enjoyable book. Uh, there, I, I never set out to have, there's no hidden, you know, political agenda or any agendas that are any of my books. I'm not trying to set out to say one thing or another and surreptitiously, you know, insert some kind of ideology into it. Um, but as far as the themes go, I think that one of the things is the, uh, you know, just the morality of combat itself. I mean, too often, like in Hollywood, it's, it's, you know, these bureaucrats would get off my back and let me use a drill bit on this guy's knee, then I'd save the day. And it, it's not really that way. I mean, you make decisions in combat all the time. Sometimes those decisions are good and sometimes they're bad. You never make them for bad reasons, but you live with those decisions when they're done. There's, there's an impact to doing combat. The hero is not always right. So what, what do you do to keep these books fresh? I mean, because this is, what, book 17 in this series so how do you how do you keep the ideas coming is there a secret to it or something you draw from no i I basically i still do security consulting so i have a every morning i read feeds from all over the world of various things that are bubbling up and uh sooner or later something will strike my fancy i'll see something and say you know that's that would make a pretty good story uh and so really it's just the real world things that are happening around the world all the time for instance in this book the germ of the devil's ransom the first thing that i started tracking on was uh there's a company called NSO in, in Israel that makes a uh, called Pegasus, and it's a zero-click uh, malware package, meaning that most malware you get, it's like as John Podesta learned, you get an email that says, hey, your FedEx package is on the way. Click here if you didn't order a FedEx package, and you click on it, and you get malware on your computer. Text comes into your phone saying your dental appointment set, and you're like, I didn't go to a dental appointment. You click on the link, now you've got malware in your phone. Well, they invented a, a system where they could inject the malware into the phone, zero click, they call it, meaning that all they need to know is your number. And that thing turns your phone into a, a surveillance device. It, they can turn the cameras on, turn the microphones on, go through your contacts, go through all the website pages you've been to, see all your pictures, just about anything. Geolocate you using the GPS feature. So it's a real powerful system, and they said they would only sell it to uh, so-called, I'm using air quotes, good guys. Well, now the drug cartels are using it. It's all over the place. 
And I read a story where the uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates, were starting their own version of the NSA. And they were calling it Project Raven. And so in order to do that, as most people do in you know other countries, they just hired a bunch of expertise outside the country. And they hired a bunch of ex-NSA guys from the United States to set their program up. Well, then they started using Pegasus because they were deemed to be good guys. And they were injecting it into uh, uh, dissident groups and into journalists, into anybody they didn't like that was against the kingdom, they would start tracking them. Um, and then they found out they were actually attacking uh, United States citizens. And so the guys that actually set this program up that were actually United States citizens, ex-NSA guys, they all went to jail because they broke the law. United States law, not UAE law, but they broke United States law. I mean, Khashoggi, when he was murdered, they looked at his phone. He had Pegasus software on it. They were tracking him through Pegasus. And so that was uh, a kind of a germ. I was like, man, that is an interesting story. And so I started doing more research on it and I uh, ran into the ransomware problem, which overtook the book. Pegasus is in the book, but it's only like a paragraph in the book now because uh, ransomware is just this insidious problem that you never really hear about. If something happens, it's a life support activity. If a hospital gets hit, we had the Colonial Pipeline hit here a year and a half ago. You know, the price of gas went up. The largest meat packer in the world was hit. Uh, that makes the news. But fully 80% of the people who get hit by ransomware don't ever admit it and don't call the FBI because they don't want to uh, um, let it be known that they got hacked because it's embarrassing. And so they had, you know, like if a bank gets hit, they're not going to say, hey, come on in and put your money in my bank. And by the way, we've got some Russian hackers running around our systems. And so they never say anything about it, but it's a huge problem. And so that's where I went with the book. Well, who resolves that problem? Well, this time it's Pike Logan, of course. That was my next question. So where does Pike Logan fit into this? So Thank we, you very much yeah. for segueing. Well, you know, the, the big problem with the uh, ransomware uh, problem set is that you're not going to get the criminals. All you can do is basically uh, either get pay the ransomware off and get your computers uh, unlocked um, or uh, – Whatever it is, or, you you know, sometimes the FBI is kind of lucky and they can get the Bitcoin back, that kind of stuff. But the people who are doing it, there's no threat to them. Their threat they have is either I'm not going to get my ransom, in which case I've wasted a couple hours of my life, uh, or I'm going to get my ransom. I mean, we can put indictments out and say we want to arrest this Russian or this guy, but he's not coming to the United States. He's never going to get extradited. And so I thought, you know, it'd be nice if you could put the fear of God into those guys and say you've got skin in this game. If you hit something in the United States, we're not going to just – try to get our money back we're going to come after you and that's where pike logan comes in because these guys make the mistake of accidentally hitting pike's company how do you decide on um what part of reality you're going to use in in any of these books like you say it's all fiction but you, 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 to make it like exciting and action adventure and for people to read you have to have some sort of reality in there oh yeah the the you know like i said the task force is fiction pike logan's fiction but the all of the novels are replete with factual-based stuff. I mean, those three things I just read you, the whole ransomware problem set, There's it's woven throughout there. Pegasus is a real thing. That's in the book. Ransomware is obviously a real thing. That's in the book. Um, and as far as realism, you know, in a set piece, geographic set, uh, if I can ever get on the ground, I definitely go do the book research. I mean, if you look at something in my book, if there's a bar that Pike goes into and has a gunfight, you can find that bar on Google. Uh, in this case, most of it's set in Croatia, and all those set pieces in Croatia I've been to and I've seen. And if uh, Pike gets lost wandering around an alley, it's because I got lost wandering around an alley. So there's there's a lot of history that's woven into it um, that coincides with, you know, how the real world's working. You can see the news stories, and they kind of thread inside the novel itself. So you make reality 
a character in your book, basically. Yeah, well, I'll give you a good example. Uh, in this specific book, there's a thing called the book opens up in Afghanistan at the fall of Afghanistan and uh, our evacuation of Afghanistan. And there's uh, uh, I wasn't going to write about Afghanistan one way or the other. People had asked me that. And it's kind of raw for me. It's raw for a lot of veterans. But I kept up with it. I had a lot of friends who were doing the evacuation. I knew who they were. Uh, and I ran across this story called the Bactrian Treasure, which is a real thing. In the late 70s, uh, Russian archaeologists found these tombs in northern Afghanistan, and they were just chock full of treasure that was throughout the Silk Road. So they had, you know, daggers from Serbia and emeralds from China and stuff from Greece. To this day, nobody knows who's in those tombs. But the treasure ended up being this Afghanistan kind of a look what we have. It was their version of King Tut. Uh, and it was this huge wad of gold. Well, when the Soviets invaded, uh, they had the big war. And then uh, the Soviets left in 1989. So from late 70s, 89, the treasure stayed in the presidential palace. When the Soviets left in 89, the treasure disappeared. And everybody just assumed the Soviets took it with them on the way out the door. Said, this is our payment for coming. We're taking this with us. Uh, then you fast forward 2001. We take over the Taliban, topple them. Uh, we put in a government, and this guy, wizened old guy, this key master guy comes out of nowhere and says, hey, i got to show you guys something. And he takes uh, a, a dedicated cell down to the underneath the main bank vault in Kabul, and there's a hidden vault down there, and inside the vault is a Bactrian treasure. He had hidden it all these years and not told anybody was in there because he was afraid the Taliban were just going to crush it. And um, he had it there the whole time. Well, now it became famous, and it went around the world. Went to China and Paris and New York and San Francisco. Did its own King Tut tour. And this is all real story. Well, when we evacuated Afghanistan, the treasure disappeared again. Uh, and nobody knows where it went. Taliban said they were going to start lopping off heads. Well, here's where it intercedes into my book. You know, nobody may know where that treasure is, but I do in my book. I know exactly where that treasure went. Uh, and so that starts the, the chase going. But Joe has it. Yeah. <laughs> it's me on the Ezra tray. Yeah. How, how do you keep track of, of, of your character, Pike Logan? Like over the books, over that many books, the things he does and, the, and what he does through that and what you explain about your character. Do you have some sort of system? No, I don't. I wish I did. I, uh, I mean, I know some people that can, uh, you know, though I would give 100% to every single book. Uh, the book I'm writing is the book that is, matters the most right now. And I don't give a lot of forethought into what's going to happen in future books. And there's been plenty of times where I did something in book eight. And then in book nine, I was like, why did I do that? I, I need A, B, C, and D to happen. But I didn't. It worked very well for book eight, but it's not working for book nine. Um, the main problem set with Pike and Jennifer and the entire task force crew is that human beings grow. You can't have the same static person in book one as you have now in book 17. Uh, I mean, as a human being, you go to college, you grow, you get married, you grow, you have a child, you grow. There's people change sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Uh, and so the hardest part of writing a series is ensuring that there's a growth through the series and that Pike Logan is not the same guy he was in book one. So what do you start with, uh, plot or character growth? Do you do, you, do you write your plot around the, the, where you want your character to go? No, I, I don't. And I think that uh, um, I might a little bit, maybe subconsciously. But I don't set out that way. There's always something in the book that uh, it, that just exposes itself as I'm writing the book itself. That that comes out. And that came out in this book as well. Uh, the Devil's Ransom, there's a little bit of a side twist there with Pike and his team. That uh, I didn't start out with that in mind. It's just as I was writing the book. When it came time to do that, I was like, that's how I'm going to go with this. 
So it sounds like you also describe your location or setting as a character as well. Like it's a very important. Yeah, the main thing is that uh, you. There's only so much you can do, at least for me. There's only so much you can do with Google Earth and Street View and that kind of stuff. If you, you every country's different, every population's different. The ebb and flow of human travel is different. I mean, you go to a, a, a subway in Japan and it's a giant free for all. Everybody punching each other to get inside <laughs> there. You know, you go to a, a different metro in uh, um, Germany and it's a different way of acting. The smells are different. I mean, if I was going to write a scene about Bangkok, having not been to Bangkok, I would not be able to capture the essence of Bangkok without just the chaos surrounding it. And so I generally like to get on the ground. Are there topics that you don't want to cover? Things that you sort of sense yourself, so you know what? I don't, I don't think I should write about that. No, there's no topic, overarching topic. There are, I mean, there's classified stuff that I'm not going to cover. Um, so, I mean, I know certain ways of things that are going on. I'm just not going to put those in a book. I'll have to figure out another way to do it. Um, that's probably the biggest thing is I'm not going to touch on that because I know we're doing something like that, and that's not something I want in the book. Well, so so your books are completely entertainment. People shouldn't take them serious, right, as in this is really going on uh, behind the scenes. Well, no, I'd say that there uh, – I'd say the this distinction of it is, is for instance, if I'm writing a gunfight scene, that's, that's about as accurate as I can make it uh, as to what really happens on the ground. Now, the difference is – in one of my books, Pike is liable to get into six gunfights in a span of a week. Now, in real life, that's not going to happen. But you're, you're writing a thriller. So uh, so when the granular action happens, it's as close as I can make it to real, including the operational planning for that type of mission uh, and the strategic level oversight for the team itself is as close as I can make it. Uh, the fiction, I guess, would be is how much action. I mean, think about a James Bond movie. You know, in one week of James Bond, he's blown up 6,000 things. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that doesn't happen in the real yeah, world. He should. <laughs> oh, hey, in the James Bond world. Hey, hey, hey. Is, is there a, do you think about your, the reader as you're writing the, the realism of your books? Or, or are they looking over your shoulder? Or are you just writing it and then let them respond to it? I just write it and let them respond to it. That's, I've, like I said, I'm a reader first. So if I read it and I don't like it, then I'm not going to put it out. If it, if I like it, then I just hope the reader will like it as well. And so far that's proven to be successful. I've never once, like I said, the first book I wrote, I didn't write for anybody else to read. I wrote it just because I wanted to write a book. Uh, I wrote it for myself because I'm a reader and I want to be proud of what I wrote. Uh, and if somebody else, it resonates with somebody else, which it did, luckily, um, then I, you know, more power to them. But I don't uh, sit there and I certainly never sit there and say, what would a reader like me to write about here? If you start chasing that, I don't think you're ever going to figure it out. So what makes a good book to you? Characters, without a doubt. I mean, you could write a scene where this Day of the Jackal type thing where they're building a car bomb and, and they smuggle all the parts in and the guys are chasing them and all this stuff. And and uh, then the car bomb goes off in an empty parking lot. I mean, who cares about that? The only reason you care is because that car bomb is going to hurt somebody that you've invested emotional energy in. And that person is the character of the book. So who is Pike Logan? Like, who do you base that on? Is that, I mean, there's obviously some of you in it. Um in all the characters, I would guess. But where where did you base that on? Did you did you take a certain person or a certain group of people, or where did that come from? Yeah, it, Pike's kind of an amalgamation of people I served with. And uh, people ask me all the time, you know, are you Pike Logan? And no, no, I'm not. <laughs> There's uh, the uh, I usually equate it to um, the PGA Tour. So there's uh, probably, you know, 1% of the world that could actually play on the PGA tour. 
just that has the skill to play on the PGA Tour. And there's uh, Royal McIlroy and Tiger Woods. That would be Pike Logan. And there's some guy who's hundredth on the money list that nobody's ever heard of. He's playing on the PGA Tour, but he's not Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy. And that's me. I'm, I'm playing on the tour. I served there. I did everything else, but I'm nowhere near as good as uh, Tiger Woods or Pike Logan. So, so uh, when you finish each story um, and each book and you put it out, how do you think it changes you? I've never been asked that. I don't think it does. I think that uh, uh, it doesn't change me in any sense that I can think of. Uh, sometimes it, the only thing I would say is that I, I reading back like years ago, like when I read One Rough Man, my very first book, Sometimes I read that and I think, you know, wow, I can't believe I wrote that. That's pretty damn good. Other times I read sections and I'm like, man, I'd like to go back and fix that, you know. So I guess the only way it changes me is my approach to writing itself and my writing skills, for lack of a better term. Each, The more you write, the better you get. And that's probably the only change that happens. Do you think about or get a lot of feedback from your peers as you're writing saying, oh, Brad, no, come on now. That would have never happened. Or No, they had. The, uh, I, I still have a lot of people read it because I'm not an expert on everything. Um, and so I've always got, a, I've got a, a, luckily a huge wealth of people to write stuff. So for instance, I'm a free fall parachutist, uh, halo jumper, uh, but I'm not a tandem jumper. And a tandem jumper means you, you either jumping a person or a gigantic torpedo attached to your body. Uh, and, uh, I don't, I don't do that. I can do free fall with a, with a, you know, rucksack and a weapon. So I had to have to do a tandem jump. And so I wrote the scene. And uh, did the best of my ability. I've seen tandems go out. I've seen another thing they did. And I tried to remember what it was. Well, luckily, a buddy of mine was used to serve with me. We ended up being the number one free fall guy. He ran the entire free fall program for the Department of Defense. And I said, hey, could you read this? And he read the first paragraph. So you screwed this all up. I said, okay, we'll fix it. How do I fix it? Unscrew it. And uh, so he did. So I do have a lot of people, and then and they all realize you're just writing for entertainment. They know the same thing, this, the drill that you're, you know, when they say this would never happen. Everything that's in my book, like I said, at a tactical level, would happen. Um, the way they find them, the technologies used. For instance, in uh, my last book, In Today's, actually it was American Trader, two books ago, they uh, were going to hit a house to rescue somebody inside the house, and they didn't know what the floor plan was, uh, and so they hacked a their Wi-Fi and got into the Roomba that was inside the house. Well, I own a Roomba, and the Roomba runs around the house and takes first time you do it, it takes six hours. The next time you do it, it takes four until it's vacuuming your house in one hour. And it develops a floor plan of your house to include where the furniture is. And then in, in my case, it tried to upload that to the cloud, and I was like, nope, that is not happening. Uh, but as soon as that happened on my own Roomba, I said I can use that in a book. And so I did. I mean, that's realistic. It can absolutely happen. Greg Hurwitz's last book he did with a toilet, a Japanese toilet Wi-Fi. Tell me about selling, marketing. There's a lot out there. You become a, a top-selling author. Is there anything about marketing that you like, don't like? I think that the uh, the one thing I don't like, but it's a necessary evil now, is, is would be social media because it becomes so proliferating. It's almost to, you know, you've got to put a newsletter out. You've got to get on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these other um, platforms and you constantly uh, have to develop content for that. Cause it, the, the uh, nobody wants to get something about my books every day. I mean, they want some, there's gotta be some other reason why I'm, I'm going to Brad's Twitter page, you know, besides, Oh, look, he's got another book deal coming out. Uh, and so that just consumes an enormous amount of time trying to keep up with that. Keep up the Joneses, I guess you'd say. So um, violence on the page. Do you, do you think about what you're going to write in, in these action scenes? 
Oh yeah, definitely. And there's sometimes I've been accused of using too much violence and sometimes I've been accused of not having enough violence. Uh, and enemy of mine, the main bad guy, this is spoiler alert. It's my third book. So if you haven't read it, I'm going to tell you what happens. <laughs> so <laughs> at the very climactic battle, uh, between Pike Logan and the bad guy, all it is is a sentence that says, and then I went to work because Pike Logan's written in first, uh, first person. I don't even put the fight on the scene. It's not on the page. That's all I said. And uh, I thought that was perfect for that. Other ones uh, that I uh, have, there's some graphic violence in it, but it's always there for a reason. I don't ever, there's no gratuitous violence. I never put any violence on the page that I think if, if I read it. And for one problem with writing about violence is, uh, or anything on an action scene, uh, uh, especially like for gunfights and things like that, you, you want the, I want the reader to be, I guess the best way to describe it is you can be outside on the street corner and watch two cars run into each other. You've seen a car wreck. I would rather you be in the car that's getting in the wreck. Uh, that's much more exciting than watching from the street corner. And in order to do that, you can, it's really hard to get the pace right so that the, the, the action is flowing in the reader's head uh, almost as a movie clip of what's going on. And so you can really slow it down if you put you know, too much violence in there describing the impact of whatever's happening, whatever kinetic weapon you're using, a knife, a bullet, or whatever. That can slow the pace down. On the other hand, sometimes it's, you know, for dramatic effect, it's really good to have that in there. Uh, but other things slow it down and just, you know, the descriptions you see in some books sometimes, you know, if uh, a guy pulls out a pistol and points it at Pike, I think the reader's got it. He's got a pistol and he's pointing at a Pike. If a guy reaches into his Kydex holster and pulls out a Glock 23 with an RMR hollow sight and his, you know, two-handed grip with his Oakley sunglasses, I've just slowed everything down when I could have just said, a pistol. And so it's a balance with me of what I'm going to put on the page. Do you visualize your books as you're writing them? Do you see it in your head? I do for the, uh, for a lot of the action stuff and, and the surveillance stuff and things like that. I have to visualize it because the good thing about writing fiction is, I mean, I used to plan operations like this all the time. And the problem with doing that is you're, you're dealing with the real world. So when I'm planning an operation with Pike and I'm like, well, wait a minute, they've got that back door. Uh, somebody's got to be covering that back door, and I'm out of teammates. I've used everybody on the assault. I can't cover the back door. Well, I'm writing fiction. That back door no longer exists. So <laughs> well done. I don't have to have that person there anymore. Delete key. Right. So, so where do you th see yourself going? How long do you keep a series like this going? When do you know to stop or to do something different, or do you? I don't think – I don't. I, I mean, I've, I know a lot of writer friends, and I always – every time I get through talking with a writer friend, you know, Mark Greeny or somebody like that, I'm thinking to myself, man, you really suck at this <laughs> because they're thinking, you know, 4D chess, <laughs> eight moves ahead. I'm thinking this one book I'm writing right now. <laughs> and so uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I guess I'll know it when it, I run into it. Uh, but until I do, I, I don't know. I don't have any plan in my head saying, you know, at this juncture, I'm going to quit. So you're not like the big outliner and got it all planned out and all this stuff. It's more do it as you go. Well, I do. I don't outline the book per se, each individual book, you know, chapter by chapter saying chapter one is going to do this and chapter two is going to do that and go all the way through. I know some writer friends of mine that actually put out a hundred page outline before they start writing. And I'm like, that's a lot of wasted words, man. You could be pumping it out. So I designed what I call a, a framework instead of an outline where I know the threat vector. I know the bad guys. Uh, I know the setting. Uh, and I would have said up until No Fortunate Son, 100% of the time I'd know the ending. Now it's probably 80% of the time things will change 
right at the ending. This one changed a little bit. The Devil's Ransom changed a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Um, and from that framework, I then just start filling in the holes. I don't, I don't know uh, what's going to happen on the page at each juncture, but I know I've got to go from – I'd say my framework is i got to go from A, B, C, D to E as opposed to an outline which would have every letter in the alphabet in it. Are you able to schedule your time? So are you that regimented that you could sit down and work, let's say, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and just write and perform? Or do you have to be in a certain mood or certain atmosphere? I don't uh, – um, a lot of the times – when people ask that question, that what they really mean is, uh, uh, you know, are you really disciplined when you type? Because I'm always writing. Uh, if I'm walking the dog, I'm writing. If I'm doing physical training, I'm writing. If I'm taking a shower, I'm writing. I'm just not typing. I have a journal I carry with me everywhere I go. And if a thought hits me in a movie theater, I'm going to the lobby. I'm going to jot that thought down. Um, and then I won't write. I did try, you know, when I first I've never had any instruction in writing. I've never, I don't have a degree in writing. I don't know anything about writing. And so I Googled, how do you be a writer? And, uh, you know, you got to put out a thousand, fifteen hundred words a day. Got to be disciplined to do that. And I found if I forced that myself to do it, by the end of the week, I ended up deleting everything I'd written because I didn't like any of it. Because the only reason I put it on the page is because I was forced to do so because somebody said that's what I have to do. Right. Uh, now I'll go days without writing and then I can write, you know, three days straight, just banging away um my record which i'm quite proud of is eight thousand words a day for four solid days um wow i had a deadline so that was a good impetus for that one but it took a while for it to build up in my head is where do i want to go with this how do i want to you know deal with this issue set that i've done uh and so until i'm really ready to write uh it's it's a waste of time for me to start typing well, how long does it take you that you you use places, you've traveled for your sets and scenery? How long does it take, Brad, to, to make a book? Uh, well, right now I'm on one book. I was doing two books a year, which was, I mean, I, I look back on that. I don't know how I did it. I did two books a year, two novellas a year, two book tours a year, two book research trips a year, and I was still doing security consulting, uh, you know, three or four security consulting trips a year. Um, I don't know how I did it. I look back on that. I'm like, what am I thinking? Because now I'm writing one book a year, and Elaine's like, my wife's right now. You got a book due. You're not finishing your book, and I'm sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. It's on the list. It's <laughs> on my list of things to do. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm working. It's, uh... <laughs> Don't bother me. Yeah. So, what are your biggest influences? Other writers, or is there something you um, draw from? Well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit before personal experience, obviously, for some of the sets. But my biggest influences as a as being able to write is definitely other writers. I, I read every, just about every genre there is. I mean, as a kid, I went through Ray Bradbury and Heinlein and all that and J.R. Tolkien and uh, Stephen King phase and uh, Piers Anthony phase. And, you know, then went into John Sanford and Michael Connelly and you, you name it. I've read them. And that's the, I just, when I wrote my first book, I was kind of like, this is how I'm going to do this because I'm basically, I guess a good mimicker as opposed to I don't have any skill sets. Nobody's taught me how to write except for the fact that I did a lot of reading. And what I liked as a reader was how I wanted to write my book because I like that. So therefore I'll like this book if I write it that way. Uh, people ask me, you know, I have Pike is in first person when he's on the page and any other time he's not on the page, it's in third person. And I got asked, you know, uh, how'd you know to break that rule? You're not allowed to do first person and third person. It's either all first or it's all third. And my answer is, Nobody told me that was a rule. 
if I knew that was a rule, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. But I read Nelson DeMille and John Corey's books are like that. And I liked how that flowed. So that's what I stole. He did it that way. John Corey, when he's on the page, he's in first person. And then you know, the bad guys are in third. And I liked how that flowed. So that's what I did. There's no great American novel inside, Brad. You don't want to say Pike's got to take a break here for a year and I'm going to write To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, I would like to say that Devil's Ransom is better than Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, it's it's probably a great right American yeah. novel. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to offend you. Don't <laughs> don't violence me. <laughs> well, uh, so so uh, how do people find you and get a hold of you? Like, what, you're you're on all social media, and you have a website. Yeah, they can go to the website at uh, bradtaylorbooks.com, and uh, there's an excerpt of every single book I've written. Not the novellas. I don't have an excerpt of those, but the the uh, full-length novels, there's an excerpt of every one of them. They can get a feel for, uh, like, The Devil's Ransom. They can read the first four chapters of that on the website. Why write novellas? Uh, originally, I wrote the novella. The was I was trying to solve a problem. I couldn't figure out how to do a character, and I had this idea in my head. Because there's only so much you can do in a full-length novel for character development. And so I was writing a novella just to kind of flesh out what happened. For instance, in between uh, uh, One Rough Man and... All necessary force, their life goes on and they're doing all this neato counterterrorism stuff. But there's an unsung question at the end of One Rough Man of whether they're going to find this temple in Guatemala. They never do it in the novels. But I said, you know, I, I could write a little short story about how that happened, how that went down. And I did. I had uh, I told you about I do things that are 100 percent in a book and then I regret doing them. Well, in Daughter of War, Amina is a Syrian refugee, 13 year old Syrian refugee that crosses paths with Pike. When I originally wrote that book, this is another part of the framework story where things change. Um, she was going to exit stage left at chapter four. Her sole purpose in life was Pike was going to run into a cell phone. She had stolen off a bad guy. And all he wants is a cell phone. He doesn't care about her. He wants a cell phone. Well, by the time I got to chapter four, I liked her too much. And she ended up taking over the whole book. Um, and it's one of the best books I've written. Well, at the end of that book, now I'm stuck with, well, you created Amina. She exists in the Pike Logan universe. Now what are you going to do? I mean, how's she going to fit into globetrotting counterterrorist guys? She's a 13-year-old. And so I wrote a novella about, okay, I got to figure out what she's going to do. And I wrote a little novella called Exit Fee, which is the last one I wrote. Actually, I just wrote one. It's not out yet, but the last one I wrote that's published. And uh, that was the flesh out, okay, what is she going to do while they're doing all this other stuff? Of course, there's a lot of action adventure and shoot them up in it but that was just for me in my own head how do i figure wow. this out pretty amazing well so what's next you got after this book what do you got you got another one already in in your mind or working out yeah i'm working on one right now in fact it's like i said elaine says i'm late on it. you better get typing get to work it's due pretty soon and uh yeah i unfortunately i i picked ukraine which the problem with writing current events is they're current. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm trying to decipher how that's going to go. It's not set in Ukraine. It's set. I did the, we've just got back from a book research trip to um, Copenhagen, uh, um, Sweden, Estonia, Finland, Denmark, uh, and just got back from that. So that's where the setting uh, is. But I'm banging away on that right now. Yeah, I guess it, it must be quite a distraction with all the stuff going on with Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, well, that's the the hardest part is there's certain set pieces in this novel that uh, if they go wrong uh, in the real world, then it's going to harm my book. But I think I've kind of predicted it okay. I mean, a good example that I wrote the insider threat when I was doing two books a year. Um, my you had to have by the time I hit the end on one book at the six month mark and sent that thing in, 
they were saying, we need the title, jacket copy, your whole plot for your next book. I mean, like the next day. And the reason for that is because is they had to put a catalog out. Six months out, they send a catalog to libraries and bookstores and say, here's the books that we're putting out. Would you like to buy these books? Well, if you don't have something in there, nobody's going to buy your book. Even if you hadn't typed a page yet, you still have to give them something to put out there. And I had nothing. I was running on empty at that point. And I said, I was doing a lot of work in the Middle East. And I said, yeah, there's this low-hanging fruit I could write about. This group called the Islamic State is they're bringing in a bunch of foreign fighters. And it's a threat vector that nobody's ever looked at. If a couple of Americans or four or five Americans went over there with blue passports, I mean, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Americans with blue passports, went over and were trained up by the Islamic State and then set free to cause havoc, um, that would be a threat. And so that's what I went with. Well, halfway through writing that book, the Islamic State became ISIS and took over Mosul and half of Iraq and all of Syria. And I was like, oh, no, we're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. My book's not going to be worth anything. Yeah. <laughs> of course, that didn't happen. And right. it looked like, look how prescient Brad is. His book came out right when he took everything over. Yeah. But there's threats that are out there that you just I try to keep a pulse on and see what, which way they're going to go. And in this case, hopefully I'm predicting correctly which way Ukraine's going to grow. And in a grand geostrategic sense, I don't mean, you know, tactically, is this town going to fall or something like that? Um, so there's a couple of things that could happen that uh, if I guess wrong, then it's going to hit. The book's going to look pretty ridiculous. Well, I guess I, you've never had it happen, but you know what I mean? It's come close, but you haven't had a book that you've had to not publish because of that. Well, no, I'd still publish it. It would just be, you know, the. I, I, there's one thing that's going to happen. Sweden's going to join NATO, I think, before the book's publication. That is a factor, and that's part of the plot. Uh, and I knew that going in. I just know there's going to be a fight all the way up, and it'll be a race against time to see whether they go in or not. Uh, but they'll end up joining, and that's not going to hurt too bad. I mean, tactically, sometimes it affects me. There's a bomb maker in uh, Yemen who's a very, very famous bomb maker, at least to people like me. He did the printer bombs, the underwear bomb in Saudi Arabia. He's done all kinds of bombs around the world. And so I put him in the book. He's building a bomb. He's a real person. This We were talking about earlier about history and reality actually being in the book. He's a real guy building a bomb in my book for this nefarious plot. Well, then we blew him up in a drone strike. <laughs> yeah. And that's I was halfway through writing the book, and I'm like, ah, okay. I'll just change his name to Abu Bag of Donuts. Exactly. And he's no longer a real guy. He's just a bomb maker. Well, then I hit the end on the book. I thought you bombed me, but you didn't. I'm like, oh, Russell Fussy. <laughs> he's still alive. You should have known. Should have known. Well, as long as he's not getting sending a bomb to you, you know. Yeah, you know, right. That's it. Well, it's been enjoyable. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Know you're busy. You got books going and everything. So um, we'll have, of course, your book website, everything up on ours, so people can find you easily, which I'm sure they could anyway. Um, so the book, of course, we've been talking about is the Devil's Ransom, and it's Pike Logan novel, and it's se book seventeen of seventeen. So thank you, Brad Taylor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.